here to introduce a guest speaker today. Um, we are honored to have uh, Justin Early with us. Um, he is an author and a speaker and a practicer of the law, a lawyer here in town. Um, he lives in the south side of Richmond with um, his wife and four boys. So yeah, the fact that he's vertical and here to talk to us today. Um, Go ahead and, you know, we'll give him a round of applause in just a second. Um, he's going to be talking to us about a parable um, of Jesus. That is part of the series that we are in. Uh, we're going through the parables in Luke. And parables, for those of you who maybe aren't familiar with that sort of Bible language, is kind of like an analogy or like sort of a folksy story that Jesus um, tells to people to, to kind of better explain much more complex topics like the kingdom of God or the love of God. Um, so uh, Justin asked me and honored me to, um, to read from the book of Luke um, before he comes up and teaches us a little bit more about it. So um, we are in Luke chapter 6, uh, verse 46, if you have a Bible or, or have a Bible app. Um, and I'm going to read it for us real quick. It'll also be up on the screen. It says, Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? As for everyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice, I will show you what they are like. They are like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. When a flood came, the torrent struck that house but could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck the house, it collapsed, and its destruction was complete. So I want to welcome, and I'd like you guys to welcome Justin Early up to teach us. Thank you, Matt. I appreciate that, Matt. I'm glad I got credit for the four boy thing. I think that's the hardest thing that I do. <laughs> uh, and, and the opening question. I don't know if y'all were here, the, the icebreaker, somebody asked, you know, share your feelings on sand. I do not like sand when it's in the hands of my boys, because <laughs> it's going to come for me. Also, the, the scripture that was read, many of you may recognize it. In different translations, it's the man who builds his house upon the rock, and then the man who builds his house upon the sand. You are not allowed to like sand this morning, all right? It's just no sand at all. All right, so let me get started here. It was, um, it was about the 48-hour mark of not sleeping that I finally decided to go to the hospital. And I'm sitting in the waiting room at about 3 a.m. one morning, and the question on my mind is not, what is this strange and sudden anxiety that's keeping me from sleep? The question on my mind in the waiting room of the hospital at 3 a.m. in this particular morning was, am I going to make it back to my law firm by 8 a.m. and get to work? Or is my, the partner that I'm working for and everybody there going to figure out what's going on? But the truth is that I actually didn't really know what's going on. So I was so overwhelmed by anxiety that I couldn't sleep, and it was so sudden that I had no idea what was going on and I was in the emergency room, but I had really no idea why. Um, a month later, after this experience, my life would be a wreck. I would be up in the middle of the night with uncontrollable fears, relying either on a bottle of bourbon or a bottle of pills to somehow fall back asleep, hoping each 
evening, just like that first one when it happened, that somehow I would hold it together and that people wouldn't find out what was happening. So I'm introducing you here um, to a real time in my life, the worst time in my life. And, uh, but there's something else that you should know about this time in, in my life. And that was that I was then, as I still am now, a devoted follower of Jesus. All right, so I was then, as I still am now, somebody who, as this passage said, would call him Lord, Lord. And the question that has stuck with me ever since this experience, which was about eight years ago now, was how is it that so many otherwise sincere, uh, otherwise very genuine followers of Jesus, those of us who, like many of you in this room, we sit and we call him Lord, Lord, how is it that nonetheless, when the floods hit our life, we crumble and we end up nervous wrecks of mental health? We end up in our depression. We end up looking exactly like the rest of the world. How is that? The answer I'm going to suggest has a lot more to do with habit than you think. But before I, I get there, despite Mac's um, fantastic introduction, you don't really know me from <laughs> Adam. So I, I, let me introduce myself a little bit. Let me give you a little bit of my background, OK? So I graduated from the University of Virginia um, and as an English major. And then I went to China for almost five years because I felt the Lord calling me to be a missionary in China. So I was a missionary in China for almost five years until I felt the Lord calling me to go back to the States to be a lawyer, more specifically to live missionally within the practice of law. Now, as you can maybe sense from this, I'm a man prone to the callings. I'm a man prone to sensing the Lord saying what I should do. And that's like a whole other sermon about feeling called to work. And, but what I want you to take from this is that I did really truly, honestly, then and still now, feel missionally called to be in the field of law, okay? So I ran out that calling with all the fervor of a man on a call. And I went to Georgetown Law in DC, and my life at that time, I wanted to do well the practice of law, so I, I, my life looked exactly like what all the other top law school students' lives looked like. It was an endless series of beeps and rings and dings and alerts. Um, I was always staying up later to add something to my resume, always waking up earlier to try to get something else done. I did that because I wanted to be excellent at it. I wanted to do well. Um, it never occurred to me that this was a problem at all. But I would tell you, if you looked at the house of my life then, the house of my life was sincerely decorated with this Christian content of calling. Meant it then, still mean it now. But here's the point I want you to consider. The architecture of my house, the architecture of my life, the architecture of my habits was exactly like everyone else's. And it totally collapsed when the floods came. Here's how the floods came. Um, it was my first year of lawyering. I had just moved down here to Richmond. I had just had my second son. My first son was uh, born in the middle of the law review right on my first year of law, law school. Anybody who knows anything about lawyering knows that's like the worst time to have a baby in law school. My second son was born on the day I was supposed to have my last final in, at Georgetown. I ended up missing that final, going to the hospital. I was with my wife. The professor did let me make up the exam. Law school's only sort of sadistic. 
Um, so I, I had just moved down here to Richmond. I had two, you know, babies, um, wonderful wife. You know, I, I was feeling so good about my life at that time that I just bought a vintage BMW motorcycle as my commuting vehicle, which was a horrible commuting vehicle for a big law firm. I had to change into like jeans and then change back into my suit every day. It was a terrible idea. But I, w I was what I thought, like living my best life. Um, so I, I was down here in Richmond, loving it. Um, two months in-ish to starting my job at the big law firm, uh, I woke up in the middle of the night with this strange sensation of total panic. I had no idea why. Like Nobody was really mean to me that day. There was not some project that was due the next morning. Um, I, I was so confused about why this was happening that I, I woke up my wife and I was like, this is really strange. Like I am panicking. Um, I'm sweating. My palms are shaking. But like, I have no idea why. She was like, okay, why don't we uh, try to go back to sleep? <laughs> so I did. And I actually did fall back asleep that night. The problem was it happened again the next night and I never fell, ba fell back asleep. And that's when I ended up in the emergency room, like I told you about at the beginning, where a doctor in one of the most anticlimactic moments of my life said, oh, you're just experiencing typical symptoms of clinical anxiety. And I was like, I'm not a stressed out person. This is not a thing for me. And he was like, tell me about your life. Past couple months, years. And I told him about the, the babies and the bar exam and law school and all that. And he was like, look, this is clinical anxiety. Here's some sleeping pills. And he sent me home. Uh, had I known then what I know now, I react to sleeping pills the way that you read on the back of the bottles. Well, funny until it happens to you. So, and I say it actually with a bit of levity because um, otherwise it was super dark. What did happen is that they did knock me out for a couple hours every night, but all the other stuff also happened. The enormous daytime mood swings, um, just like hallucinogenic nightmares, even suicidal thoughts. I went from what I thought was the best time in my life to what I am sure was the worst time in my life. There, is, there was a moment I remember, I'll never forget, my wife came to me one evening, handed me some dishes in the kitchen to put away, and I took them, looked at them, gave them back to her, and said, I don't know where these go. Because that's how mentally thin my life was getting. Simple tasks were becoming really, really difficult. And you can imagine I'm worried about keeping my job. You can imagine I'm worried about paying back my student debt. But even on a deeper level, I'm worried about, how am I going to be the father? the friend, the husband, the missionary to law and business that I so longed to be. Everything was threatened. This was the flood in my life. And for a long stretch, I was not sleeping unless I was either drinking or taking medications. It was a dark night of the soul, and the whole time I was crying out, Lord, Lord, what is happening? Um, the question, here's one way to phrase it. How was it the missionary, the missionary to law, like me, became converted to the nervous medicating lawyer in such short order? The answer I have come to find years later is by habit, by practices. It's the architecture of your life. How do you build your life? Looking back now, the, way, the reason I can say that with confidence is because I think what happened to me is that my body, my heart, finally became converted to these rhythms of nervousness and anxiety that my, that my routines and my habits were worshiping. And the reason I, I can say that with confidence is because of what happened a year later. All right, bear with me for one more story. This one's a lot happier though. It had been a long, dark year. 
I tried medication, I tried counseling, none of this was really going away. I was sitting with my friends, my two best friends, at a restaurant in Churchill. And it was around the new year, and I put a program of habits on the table. And I asked my two best friends, their names are Matt and Steve, and I said, would you guys keep me accountable to living according to these daily and weekly rhythms? Now, here's how I got there. I was just trying to do one more thing to see if it would work. My wife and I came up with some like limiting rhythms to like rein my chaos in, but like I said, I tried counseling, tried medication, nothing seemed to work. I was just trying to be a good boy and say, yes, I'll try one more thing. I was seriously in crisis. I did not think any of this stuff, and I'm gonna tell you about what some of the habits were in a couple minutes. I did not think any of this stuff would matter because I had no idea how much the smallest and most ordinary routines of our days and weeks actually impact our souls in the most significant and extraordinary ways. My life began from that day to completely change. And I'm talking to you now, about seven or eight years later, as someone who slept like a baby last night, praise God, you know, unmedicated, as somebody who, who drinks alcohol responsibly, as somebody who is still in the vocation of law, I actually own and run my own practice now, it is more work and more stress, but I am full of joy and the sense of calling. I've got four boys, which as you know is a flood in your life, as you know shakes the foundations of your life, but I feel like I'm living into my calling as a father. I, yes, I went on to write a book about some of these habits, but the most important thing that I would tell you is not any achievement that came from moving from that place in my life to this one. It's more this. I was in a dark night of the soul, I was in the flood, and I can tell you that the words of scripture are true, that he does walk with you in the valley of the shadow of the death. He does use suffering for a reason. He does use the horrible things that happen though you're crying out, Lord, Lord, I don't know why. He uses them for good. And I stand in front of you now as somebody who can say, probably the most important thing I've learned as a lawyer is nothing about the law. It's something about habits and how you live. It is that we are all being converted by our habits. That is why this passage is so, so important. Look at this passage, I, I, want you to, I want you to notice a couple things about it. First, this is simple, right? This is the wonderful thing about Jesus' teaching. It's the wonderful thing about his parables and his metaphors. They're so simple. I'm up here giving like a half an hour of speech and Jesus says it in just like 30 seconds. Here's what he says. There's two kinds of people, all right? Both of them hear his words. There's two kinds of people. One of them puts them into practice and one of them doesn't, all right? Jesus is interested in how your life looks. He is not just interested in you listening to him because Jesus' concept of faith is something more than letting his words pass over your eardrums. Jesus says the kinds of people who are my followers are the kinds of people who follow me, who do the things I talk about, right? I want you to know something else too. Um, it's possible to listen to Jesus and not follow him. It's possibly sitting in a room like this and not do it. But second, here's the big commonality of, of both of these people. The storm comes, right? The flood comes. The commonality of life is that everybody is hit by a flood. I just want to pause on that for a second. Do you know that? Some of you are nodding because you know you've been hit before. Do you know that life is hard? Do you know that suffering will come? It will find you. You know that evil actually exists and you have to fight it. 
Do you know that life will wait, wear you down and you have to figure out a way to endure? Do you know that you will die and you have to figure out a way to face that? Life is not easy and Jesus knows that. He is the one who said in this world you will have trouble but take heart, I have overcome the world. And Jesus is calling all of us to a life of following him which means not just a life of listening but a life of practice. A life where you align the habits of your days and weeks to the messages that you hear on a Sunday like this. Why does that matter so much? Because Jesus knows and he's telling us here, your habits lead the heart. Now, Jesus, ahead of his time, neurologists have come to figure this out recently. Let me tell you, let me tell you about this. So, there's a really good reason, neurologically and theologically speaking, that habits lead your heart, okay? First, um, modern neurology has shown us that about 40% or more of our actions every day are not the product of conscious choices. They're actually the product of habit, okay? And so when smart people look and they write about habit, they say things like this. When a habit is formed, your, your brain stops fully participating in the decision making. And your, your life goes on, your body goes on automatically. So this is actually fantastic for us in day-to-day -day life. This is how I can drive down Broad Street and make the right turn to U-turn and I'll get back home this morning without ever thinking about it. I will unconsciously drive, because like, it's, it's habit, I've done it before. I can do something more important with my mental energy. Hopefully not texting, maybe more like thinking or you know, listening to the radio. I can, I can do all those things and that is the beauty of habit. Now, here's the dark underside though, right? When it's a bad habit, we know we want to do otherwise but our brains and our bodies go on that way anyway, okay? So think about when it's an evening pattern of addiction, like I was struggling with. When it is a normal day-to-day -day rhythm of gossip or complaining or anxiety at your job or office. When it's a mindless morning pattern of waking up and giving your attention to an operating system that is designed to attract and sell your attention to advertisers, Yes, we all know that we should do something else. But by habit, we continue to do these things. And here's the point. You don't have the power to fight back you think you do when it's a bad habit because your brain's not fully participating in that decision. All right? This is where the neurology starts to bleed into the theology. What's, what's happening in our bodies is also what's happening in our heart. And here's one way to think about it. When your head goes this way, okay, but your habit goes that way, where is the heart going to follow? The heart always follows the habit. And that is the most important theological thing that I want you to take away from this story and this neurology. You, if you want to think accurately about habits, you have to understand habits as liturgies, okay? Liturgies may be a word you're familiar with, maybe not. Here's what a liturgy is. It's, it's a pattern of words or actions that we repeat over and over as worship. And we do it because we want to become like the one that we worship. We want to become more like the person of Christ, okay? That's why we set up, this, this church might not call the order of worship that we just went through a liturgy, but it is one. We enter, we welcome, we look at each other. You sing a song, you're called into prayer, now you're hearing something. This is all a pattern of worship, and most of you don't notice it because that's exactly what patterns do. They sink down, right? So now I want you to think about the similarities between the idea of liturgy and the idea of habit. They're both things that we do over and over, 
subconsciously to semi-consciously. They're both things that form us in the image of something else. The big difference is what? Liturgy admits that it's about worship. All right? Our day-to-day habits often obscure what we worship, but that does not mean we are not worshiping because you were made to be a worshiping creature. You will always worship. The question is not whether you are worshiping, it is what you are worshiping. And worship changes you. It forms you. This is why the psalmist said those who make and trust in idols will become like them. Okay? Worship changes you. The only thing you're learning right now is that it's happening in your day-to-day normal practices. It's happening in the habit architecture of your life. Here, I'm going to bring the neurology and the theology to a, a practical example. Okay? Here's what this looks like for your habits to shape your identity. Here is my morning routine pre-anxiety crash. All right? Habit one. I wake up short on sleep because I never go to bed on time, okay? What's the liturgy of worship? It's this idea that I'm infinite, that my body is more like a machine than a body. I can push it to the ends, almost like I'm a god, all right? Habit two, I uh, wake up, open my eyes, and open my phone, and then check my emails, okay? What's the liturgy of worship? It's not that I would say this at the time. But it's this idea that the most important thing about today is not whether I have a moment of silence, meditation, prayer, quiet time in the morning. No, the most important thing about today is whether I can get what so-and-so in the office needs done. As if, like, if I don't get it done, like, what am I worth if I'm not making people in the office happy? Habit number three, I, everybody in my house grabs breakfast on the go, and we all rush somewhere late. At lunch, I probably eat at my desk. And what's the liturgy going on? It's this idea that to be busy is actually not just normal, but maybe it's even good. Because if I'm always that busy, it must mean that people want my time. All right? So it must be that I'm worth something, and I'm wanted. And I want to stay wanted, so I need to stay busy, so I never say no to anything. Um, one more. I get to my office desk, and I put up my laptop, my phone, my Gmail alerts, my client alerts, my calendar notifications, my texts are on. I mean, this is like exhausting just listening to it. Do not work like this, OK? Do not work like this. It's the idea that the most important thing about work is not some actually like real depth of neighbor love, like I'm actually serving something, somebody or working something out for somebody. It's the idea that, no, my job at this desk today is to stay updated, to respond to the most recent notification, because you know, recent is relevant and urgent is important. Let me just stop there, OK? I'm already out of breath, because it's not even 10 AM. And this is a terrible, terrible way to live. By not having any program of habits, right? By not having any liturgy of my day, I am unconsciously submitting to the modern American default program of habits, which is forming me in all this worship of omniscience, knowing everything, omnipotence, being able to do everything, omnipresence, being able to be all these places at one time. I use those words because they're the attributes of God because I want to emphasize that our normal default day-to-day routines are liturgies of worship to us being God and not God being God. They are forming us in the idea that we are the infinite end-all, be-all of our day. And no wonder we're falling apart. That is no way to build your life. The foundation of a life where you are God is a house that is built on nothing because it's not true. The foundation of a life built on the rock is a different kind of life. 
It's one where our practices and our habits are aligned to the idea that we stand on something that is not us. His name is Jesus. He is the rock. He is God. He is infinite. He is the one who died and rose again for us. He is something sturdy enough to build a life on. How would we do that? What would that look like? What would it look like to take a different program of habits? This is, this is what I want to talk to you guys about for the remaining time here. And I'm going to try to do it quickly. The, in a book that I wrote after this experience called The Common Rule, I lay out eight habits, four daily and four weekly, for the regular people like you and me to rethink how we live our days and weeks. I want to give you four examples. We're not going to get into all these. I'm going to give you four examples just so you can kind of think about what would it actually be like to take my normal day-to-day -day practices and align them to the way that Jesus teaches. Um, I'm going to start with one called Scripture Before Phone, okay? Don't get overwhelmed because if you look at the diagram I'm about to put up behind you, you'll see that if you think about adding four new daily habits and four new weekly habits to your life, you're going to be like, whoa, this guy is overwhelming. That's a lot of stuff. I thought we were talking about calming down, chilling out, not having anxiety crashes. But I just, I want you to note something. Everything I'm about to talk to you about is in a way doing less, not more. Everything I'm about to talk to you about is also online, so you don't need to take careful notes or take pictures. You can go up and read more. But everything I'm about to talk to you about is not a burden, okay? What is a burden is to continue to do nothing. What is a burden is to continue to live the normal life that you are living swept away in the American current of habits. That is very heavy, that is very hard, that is very burdensome. Here are four ideas of living a light and freeing life. All right, habit number one, scripture before phone. This habit came to me when I was um, in my first year of lawyering at, at McGuire Woods, was the law firm I was at. I was working with a London office and I would wake up every day to six hours worth of emails from London because they're six hours ahead of us. And so I'd open my eyes, check my email, and I never thought this was a problem until one morning my son woke up early and I heard him crying. I, I sat up in bed, went to help him, or so I thought. Actually, five minutes later, I'm sitting on the edge of my bed, halfway through a response to the London office when I snap to attention, like, oh my gosh, my son is still crying. I never got, how did I become the guy that's more attentive to the cries of his office than the cries of his son? My son, you will be happy to know, was fine. He lost his pacifier. But this was a wake-up call for me. It was like, nobody sets out to become that person. But how many of us become like that because of the habits of our gaze, all right? My head, y'all's head, we all do this, right? We're asking our friends really simple questions in the morning. It's like, what do I need to do today? Or what's going on today? Or what are people talking about today? So we think. Our hearts are asking our friends much more significant questions. Like, who do I need to be today to be lovable? What do I need to act like today? What do I need to agree with today? What do I need to like? What picture do I need to take? What task do I need to do? To, to make things feel okay. And what I want to tell you is that you are formed far more, far more by the habits of your gaze than you think. All right? And the biggest change that's come in my life since that time is just this small practice of saying, I'm not going to look at my phone until I look at scripture first. And y'all, most mornings this is like five minutes. This is not complicated stuff. But the love reversal is enormous, and I will stand by this, because when I spend just a moment, just a few minutes in Scripture, 
I realized that the most important truth about today and the universe is done. I am loved. God loves me. So now I can go to those notifications, those emails, everything else, knowing that I can just go and give love. I do not have to look for my love there. And knowing that you're loved before you go out into the world, especially if your phone makes all the difference. Habit number two, I want to stick on the subjects of phones for a second and say, you should be turning it off for an hour a day. Here's why. Um, unsurprisingly, what happens when we are constantly around technology, particularly our phones, is that our bodies are present, but we are not. And this is a problem, not because of productivity, actually. It's a problem because you were made for presence. That's, that's like your spiritual DNA. God created man and woman in the Garden of Eden to be with each other and with him. We were made to be with people. And so often it is true that the distractions in our life, particularly screens, are the reasons we are around people, but not with people, okay? And now all of you probably are like, yeah, I know. Everybody thinks they should be on their screens a little less. The problem is none of us do it because we don't get this thing that habits are leading the day. So, so I, I figured this out um, by reading a book called Irresistible. It's a book by Adam Alter. It's called Irresistible, The Rise of Addictive Technology and the Business of Keeping Us Hooked. As a writer, I'm like, whoa, what a subtitle. <laughs> That's an amazing subtitle. But he, he talked in a podcast about the book about this idea that um, experts call stopping mechanisms. And psychologists call these things stopping mechanisms. They're, they're little habits that, get, that interrupt addictive behavior. And there's a lot of studies on this in you know, alcoholism, um, chronic stealing, lying. There's things called stopping mechanisms that get people out of their addictive routines. And he talked about the idea of actually turning your phone off for an hour a day being one of the most su successful stopping mechanisms for technological addiction. And I thought, you know what, I'm gonna try this. I was terrified because I work at a big law firm and I'm just sure like when I turn my phone off for an hour someday, my partner is gonna email or like a client is gonna send some emergency, you know, I'm gonna miss something. But I'm like, I gotta figure out a way to get my presence back, right? I'm a man in crisis, I gotta figure this out. So I do it. And what you have to do, by the way, is you have to hold the buttons on the side for a really long time, <laughs> longer than you think. And then your phone will say, are you dying? Do you need medical help? You must be having a breakdown, otherwise you wouldn't be turning this off. But you can, you can swipe. And then you will have a mini breakdown because you'll be like, oh my gosh, it's off. I am unreachable. What if blank? And that is exactly what I want you to experience. I'm serious. A, a University of Virginia study actually showed that a phone even upside down but on, on a table, reduced the people at the table's satisfaction in the conversation. Just like the idea of the possibility changes how we think. And what happens when you remove the possibility is you've got to deal with this. You've got to deal with your thoughts. You know what else you have to deal with? The people around you. You know what families are great for? Sanctification. You know what church bodies are great for? Bible studies are great for? Friends are great for? Sanctification. And by that I mean wearing you down in the most holy of ways. To deal with other people is to learn to love. Presence is the medium of love. If you are not present with people, you do not learn to love. What did Jesus tell us is the greatest commandment? To love God and love neighbor. That is not possible in a world of distraction. Literally, this is why Jesus is telling you, don't just hear that. 
go do it. What I'm telling you is you can't do it when you're continually distracted. Build your life on a rock. Speaking of friendships, I'm gonna move to the next habit because my claim is that friendships, presence, relationships, what I'm gonna say specifically friendships here, they will make or break your life. And the world is not set up to guide you into friendships. The habit I wanna suggest, this is a weekly one, not a daily one, is the weekly habit of spending an hour in vulnerable conversation with a friend. That's a bit of a mouthful. It's not as pithy as scripture before phone, but hang with me. Weekly habit of spending an hour in conversation with a friend. This might be an accountability group. This might be a small group. This might be you and a friend having a beer on a porch. This, this might be a, a phone call. This, this could be a lot of things. But the reason I say this is because I mean what I just said. Friendship will make or break your life, okay? There was a study that came out pre-pandemic that showed that life expectancy of average Americans was decreasing. That had not happened, remember, I'm talking about pre-pandemic. That had not happened since the 60s when there was a flu epidemic. And of course, it was obvious why the life expectancy went down, because there were a lot of younger deaths. For almost 60 years, the life expectancy of Americans had been increasing until circa 2016, 17. And all these experts are looking at, why is this happening? There, what, what is going on? And people started to excuse me, write about what was called an epidemic of loneliness. They were noticing that all the stats that were bringing the average life expectancy down were younger deaths that were mostly nasty stuff, like suicide, like opioid addictions, like drug overdoses. And, and as they put them together, alcoholism, depression, all this stuff, it's all preventable stuff. Right? And it was all stuff that was come from living lives isolated. There was a study that showed that actually chronic loneliness reduces your life expectancy to the tune of smoking 15 cigarettes a day. This is not made up. You can go look for that metadata study. This is real. It's actually starting to be written about a lot right now. You can imagine what happened to the pandemic, right? It got worse. All of it got worse. What I'm saying is friendship actually does make or break your life, not just in a bodily sense, but also in a spiritual sense. And here, that, that was all to get your attention about friendship. Here's the real thing, right? You need somebody who knows you fully and loves you anyway. That's what a real friend is, okay? I say it like that because think about who Jesus is and what he did for you. Jesus is somebody who knows us fully and loves us anyway. He is somebody who understands the depths of our failure and looks at us with the gaze of a loving parent and says, I am sticking with you. You are mine and no one else's. That is why Jesus is so good. That is why we worship him. And to put that gospel into the pattern of practice of friendship is one of the most spiritually important things you will ever do or not do. We need rhythms. Look, everybody wants more friends, okay? But I'm not talking about a, com a common sense argument because it's common sense. I'm talking about common practice because you've got, I think, about 168 hours of week. And I'm trying to say, how do we put one towards this life-giving practice of friendship? Because the, otherwise, you know what the foundation of American life, the slant of American life is? Is to become somebody who's a busier and wealthier person who used to have friends. And I'm saying we have to work against that if we're going to build our house on something else. So for me, what this looks like is there's a 9 p.m. on Monday. There's a weekly call with my best friend, Steve. You remember his name? He was the one who helped me get out of the crisis. Every other Tuesday, me and Steve and Matt, same people who met me at my point of crisis, we get together. And I mean, years ago we called it an accountability group. Now we just call it sitting in the backyard and talking. But here's the thing, we tell the truth. 
And I, I could not be happier to stand up in front of you all. Most of you, I can't even see because of the lights, and I probably don't know. But look, I stand up you, in front of you as a person without secrets. Like, you don't know all my secrets, but Matt and Steve do. And that is one of the most important and gospel truths about my life, that with Matt and Steve, I regularly practice, hey, you all like Jesus. I want you to know me fully and commit to sticking around anyway. Let me close with this last short habit of Sabbath. It's the idea that taking a day every week off from what you normally do and resting. And I, you know, this might not be doing nothing. There's a Jewish scholar named Abraham Heschel who said a man who works with his hands should Sabbath with his mind. But a man who works with his mind should Sabbath with his hands. So when I love handyman projects. I love like tinkering with stuff. I love exercise. I love playing with my boys on, on Sundays. Um, whatever your Sabbath day is, here's what I want you to think about. In order to do this holy rhythm that we're actually commanded in Scripture, you'll, you'll remember, I didn't make this one up. If you go back to the Ten Commandments, you can find this one. Sabbathing is this idea that you, you just stop. But the hard thing about that is that if you do try to take a day off a week from what you normally do, you will inevitably get to this feeling, wait, everything's not going to be done, though. I, I still got more to finish. And that's actually hard. It's really hard. I got another email to write, or I got more laundry to do, I got more errands to run. But this is the point. It is to realize that we are not the kinds of people who can finish. God is the kind of God who finishes it for us. And Jesus on the cross, you remember what he said? He said, it is finished. Sabbath is a, a weekly reminder of your salvation. The idea that everything important in the world is done. It is done. You do not need to strive more to feel like somebody important. Jesus secured your identity on the cross. You do not need to work more. You do not need to make your house more clean or more Instagrammable. You do not need to add things to your tasks. You, you, here's the difference. You can work out of the rest. You can stop for a 24-hour period and remember that Jesus sustains the world and you don't, and then go back to the world out of that joyous fact. Anne Lamott, uh, writer, put it like this. She said, everything will work again if you just unplug it, turn it off, and then restart it, <laughs> including you. And, and I like that, and I want to close on that, because it's this idea that you're not a machine. You're a soul. You're not a body that is programmed. You're a living being with practices, and you are called to align them to the life of Christ. None of this is going to change God's love for you, okay? But God's love for you can, should change your habits. Let me pray. Lord, many of us find you at many places this morning, maybe in crisis, maybe in the storm, maybe in the flood. Would you meet us where we are? Show us how that we can renew and realign our habits to your love. May we be people who see your love and respond. Amen.